0: Good morning, everybody. special welcome to those of you joining us online. And you may notice that I have a little pep in my step this morning. Yeah. Michigan fans, where are you at? Yep. And if you're at home on the couch, you too, I'm sure just went, woo. But boy, that was a good game. Michigan State fans, we understand that you're here to grieve. Okay. But, but hey, after next week, things are looking up for you. I'm just saying, ha, oh, now we should talk about the things of the Lord. Anyway, uh, Today we get to continue a series we've called Virtual Israel, and as many of you know, it's content I've been working on uh, for about a year now in preparation for the trips uh, Keystone planned to take to Israel in 2020, trips which, as you may have noticed, didn't quite work out as we had hoped. And and so this fall, I decided to do the next best thing and take all of you on an eight-week trip to Israel Virtually. And as a bonus, you don't even need a valid passport. But the pandemic, I'm not sure you could get one anyway, so no worries, right? Uh, Here's how it works during each week of the series I introduce you to a site that was included on the itinerary for our trips, and then I'll teach some of the content I had planned to teach at that site. Um, And as we've seen already and will continue to see, these sites served as a setting for some iconic Old Testament stories, stories that ultimately set the stage. For Jesus. And so, anyway, today I get to present you with one of the most interesting sites in Israel's desert region. It's an oasis called En Gedi. And it's drawn visitors for thousands of years because, unlike almost anywhere else in the desert, it has water. Uh, Here's a picture of the most famous water on the site. Uh, This is David's waterfall, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, especially given the contrast. If you look just up in this region, you can see there's just barren, rocky wilderness surrounding uh, this nature reserve. Um, And this is, of course, named after the David of David and Goliath fame. Uh, David hid near En Gedi, there's a bunch of caves, around a thousand years before the time of Jesus, when he was hiding from a king named Saul, who at the time wanted to kill him. Uh, anyway, here's a fly-in from our friends at Google Earth to kind of illustrate where En Gedi sits into re- in relationship to the rest of Israel. And what's really interesting about En Gedi is it literally sits right on the shore of the Dead Sea, uh, which honestly makes the water you find there that much more impressive. Uh, because as you've probably seen from the Travel Channel, if you haven't been there yourself, uh, uh, the Dead Sea, along with being the lowest place on planet Earth, it contains water that is almost 10 times as salty as the water you find in the ocean. And while that makes a day at the beach really interesting because you can literally float in water while reading a newspaper, here's a guy I found on the Google doing just that, right? Um, The water in the Dead Sea is highly problematic because there's so much salt that the Dead Sea can't support life of any kind. Plants and animals alike cannot exist in or be sustained by its waters. But right on the shore of the Dead Sea, and in the ancient world it looks like it was right on the shore, lies this oasis of Angedi. And the waters of Angedi are amazing. They're clean and clear and cold and refreshing. It's really no surprise at all that travelers in the desert have sought refuge at Angedi for pretty much as long as there have been travelers in the desert. And now as interesting as all that is, as a pastor, I have a personal connection to engedi for, for another reason. It's actually the place that finally answered a question about the Bible that I had carried with me for 10 years at the time. Uh, if you've spent any time in the text, you may have asked this question too. Here's the question that I carried. Uh, what is living water? I realize that more than a few of you are not nearly as nerdy as me and consequently may have never asked this question, right? So let me give you a bit of background as to why I think it's a good question to seek an answer to. Uh, the image of living water surfaces repeatedly in the accounts of Jesus' life. And every time it does, Jesus identifies it as something critical to human thriving, both physically and and spiritually. Let let me give you a couple of examples to show you what I mean. Uh, The first is from an account uh, of a day Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem to celebrate a Jewish feast called Tabernacles. Uh, During uh, that annual celebration, people lived in tents for seven days. You might say the festival was intense. Oh, see, that's a great pastor joke right there. I don't even care who you are. Uh, Anyway, lived in tents for seven days to remember the 40 years that Israel uh, spent in the desert, when God led them through the desert, and they lived in tents. And so Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. uh, And on the last day, the greatest day of that feast, John records what happened. He tells us, he says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood, and and the uh, the setting here, he's in the temple, and said in a loud voice, "Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink." He goes on, "Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them." And, and this statement, it sounds great. And and if you're a Christian and you've read this for years, you probably do what we do when we find something in the Bible we don't really understand. We just kind of moo. We go, mm, right? Because it's good and it's rich and and I'm sure there's really some meat there. But, but for me, it raises a lot of questions, beginning with the most obvious. I mean, Did Jesus' original audience have any idea what he was talking about? And if so, what information did they have that were missing? Well, to me, it, it, the picture gets even more interesting because as John's account continues, the image of living water surfaces again, this time, though, indirectly. And, and when it does, it offers us a bit of a clue as to what Jesus means. So John records that during that same feast, that year, during Tabernacle, some Jewish religious leaders caught a woman in the act of adultery. Sidebar, if that feels a bit odd to you, you should know that when thousands of people live in tents for a week and celebrate God's provision by drinking copious amounts of wine, they, how shall I keep it, PG-13, it's not inconceivable that someone may end up in other people's tents. We'll leave it at that. And so the religious leaders catch a woman in the wrong tent and they haul her before Jesus and they ask Jesus, what should they do with her? And in response, Jesus asked them what Moses told them to do with her. And Moses, of course, was the leader who led them through the wilderness. Uh, and, and they respond that Moses had said that she should be stoned, but they really wanted to know what Jesus thought they should do. And, and by way of an answer, Jesus being absolutely brilliant, uh, he does something really odd, at least at first, John tells us that he bends down and he begins to write in the dust on the ground with his finger. To which we would go, hmm, once again, right? Like, what is Jesus doing? What's he writing? And it's easy for us to miss the significance of what he was doing, but the rest of the audience, that those religious leaders who were incredibly well-versed in the Old Testament they would not have missed what Jesus was doing. Because in this moment, Jesus is physically enacting something that had been written 600 years earlier by an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. He wrote the following Jeremiah said, Lord, speaking to God, you are the hope of Israel. And then he says, Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. And here it is again the spring. Of living water. So Jesus is basically offering a critique, a criticism of the religious leaders in the day, basically saying they have turned away from God. They have forsaken the spring of living water. So in this passage, Jeremiah is basically describing people whose hearts are far from God, individuals who've forsaken the spring of living water. But what does living water have to do with God? And what does any of this have to do with us? Well, as I mentioned, one day, standing near David's waterfall at Angeti on a particularly hot summer day, I had those questions answered. And with the rest of our time, I want to share with you what I learned that day, because I'm convinced that the answer to that question has all sorts of wonderful implications for you and me today, especially if you find yourself at a spot where life is not what you want it to be. So, Uh, By way of answer, I'll begin by noting that ancient people thought of water as existing in two forms. They called it cistern water, or sometimes you find it uh, labeled dead water, or living water. Uh, Cistern water was basically water that had been stored in an open-air holding tank called a cistern. And and consequently, it was often muddy and stagnant and warm and uh, polluted by animal droppings hey, look, a toilet, not really, right? Uh, It's not exactly triple filtered water that you get for free with your coffee at Starbucks, if you know what I mean, right? Uh, So this picture is of an ancient cistern and it was taken at a site called Qumran, which is about 20 miles north of En also on the shores of the Dead Sea. Um, And fun fact, uh, uh, Qumran, rather, is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, if you're familiar with that, in 1947. Anyway, cistern water, though acceptable to sustain life, it wasn't particularly pleasant to drink. You often would have to boil it so you didn't get sick. It, it was something that you relied on only when it was your only option. In contrast, the phrase living water was used to describe water that came from rain or a spring or a river. Water that was like free-flowing and pure and untouched by human hands. And as you can imagine, especially in the desert, living water is both rare and And precious. So much so that the Bible's authors leverage it as a way to describe their intense desire to stay connected to God. In fact, it was near the living waters of Engedi that David, of David and Goliath fame, wrote some of the most famous words in the entire Bible. In a moment when he had literally reached the end of his ability to control his circumstances and he was afraid for his life because the king was after him, he wrote, these words. As the deer pants for streams of water, and I know some of you have a hymn running through your head right now, but this is where it's from, right? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And in these verses, David identifies a thirst that he says in his soul that only God can quench, a deep Longing that only God can satisfy. Uh, This isn't the only place David refers to living water. He says something similar in a poem recorded a bit earlier in the Old Testament. There, he writes these words. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land. Some of you in an earlier translation, in a dry and weary land. Where there is no water. Now, now, it's evident that when David writes these words, he means them. These are from the Psalms, and Psalms are originally songs. This is the songbook of ancient Israel. And so they're written by an artist who reaches a moment of his life where this is the emotional space which they occupy. D- David means what he writes. He reached a season in his life when he had literally come to the end of himself, and so he begins to declare his desire to connect to something or better someone much greater than himself someone who can provide what he needs the most someone someone who can provide him with hope and he knows he needs it because in this moment he's both figuratively and literally in the desert he feels exposed and vulnerable and insecure He can't see a way forward and he can't see a way out. So he does the only thing he can think to do. He turns to God and he longs for God. like, Like someone in the desert longs for access to living water. And if we're honest, even if we've never verbalized it, we've all had moments like that. Moments when life moves from comfortable and predictable to confusing and disorienting and painful and chaotic. Moments when we enter a metaphorical desert. That times when our health takes an unexpected turn for the worst and we find ourselves confronted with the fact that our bodies are not designed to last forever. And we lie awake at night and consider all the years that we lived in denial of that reality because it's easy to live in denial of that reality. And then without warning, um, we've been awakened to something we'd rather ignore and we feel vulnerable and we feel insecure and, and so we do the only thing that, that we can think to do, we We turn to God. We thirst for a tangible connection with him. Something that will make us feel like everything will be all right. Something that can offer us hope. Or those times when circumstances beyond our control remind us of the uncomfortable reality that we're largely incapable of protecting our financial future from being threatened. In a brutally honest moment, we admit to ourselves that we don't control the stock market. And we kind of knew that, but then in those moments, you feel it. We don't control the Federal Reserve. We don't control interest rates. We don't control real estate values. And we don't control the ebb and flow of a global viral pandemic. And so we lie awake at night and consider all the years that we lived with the illusion of control. We've been awakened to something that, that if we're honest, we'd rather ignore. And, and we feel vulnerable, and we feel insecure, and we don't like it. And, and, and so we... We do the only thing we know to do. We do the only thing we can think to do. We we turn to God. We thirst for a tangible connection with him, something that will make us feel like everything will be all right, something that can offer us hope. Or there are those times when, when someone we love chooses a path in life that we do not love and that causes unspeakable relational damage as a result. And in these moments, we feel hurt. We may feel rejected, we may feel ignored, we may even feel betrayed, and there's really nothing we can do about it. And so we lie awake at night, and consider all the years we lived with this illusion of control, because now we've been awakened to something we'd rather ignore, and we feel vulnerable, and we feel insecure. And so we do the only thing that we know to do, we do the only thing we can even think of doing, we turn to God. We thirst for a tangible connection with Him, something Something that will make us feel like everything will be all right. Something that can offer us hope. Well, the unfortunate reality, and maybe it's just me, but I think it's for most of us. It's only in the metaphorical deserts of life, moments when we've literally run out of answers, that we can truly thirst for God. But see, there's good news here too, because the good news is that God has always been in the business of meeting us, in that space, and then leveraging that space to build relationship with us. A relationship built on trust. Because in that place, we don't just know in our minds that he is faithful, but we experience his faithfulness on a tangible level. And in a strange way, desert seasons offer us the opportunity to confront one of life's most destructive lies as well as one of life's greatest sins, self-sufficiency. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but, and, and maybe it's just my children, but one of the first things most of us learn to say when we're little was some version of this. I do it myself, right? And I know there's actually really, we're missing a will there, but it's a kid thing, right? Yeah, so I'll do it myself. I, I don't need any help. I've got this. I don't need any outside intervention. I've got it. I can control it. And the Bible's authors repeatedly point out that this impulse, though natural, is not particularly helpful. Because, as our big idea for today states, feelings of self sufficiency can easily become the enemy of authentic faith. And I'm convinced that that this predisposition is the primary reason that God led Israel to the desert and then led them through the desert for 40 years. He needed to bring them to the end of themselves so that he could teach them that they needed him and that they could trust him. He wanted to be for them a heavenly father. And they had spent generations in Egypt when they entered the desert, where in spite of being enslaved, at least during the last part, their natural sense of self-sufficiency had been reinforced. The Egyptian culture was wealthy and the Egyptian culture was powerful. And they had access to tools and technologies that enabled them to shape and even at times control their environment. Uh, for example, during my studies for this, this week, I came upon uh, this fact that the ancient Egyptians had invented a water wheel, which to us doesn't look very progressive, but to them was radically progressive, and, and that would take water from the Nile River when it flooded and would move it into their fields in order for their crops to be watered. And so it was innovations like this that had likely led Abraham's descendants to begin to believe that they were able to remain in control of their lives and that they really didn't need God. And so after rescuing them from Egypt, God brought them to a place where they couldn't provide for their needs and they couldn't trust in their own abilities to survive. I remember the first time I stepped foot in the Sinai Desert and I looked around and I thought, but it's almost like God dropped them on the moon. I mean, it's just the most desolate, rocky landscape imaginable. So God brings them to a place where they could understand that he was the one who would ultimately provide for their needs. And full disclosure, that's not my theory that, that that's why God brought them into the desert. It's actually the essence of a speech that's given by Moses to Abraham's descendants near the end of their time in the desert and the end of their four decades of being led through the wilderness. And and shortly before they cross over into the land that God had promised to give them, a good land flowing with milk and honey, right? It's recorded for us. The speech is in the fifth book of the Old Testament, a book called Deuteronomy. And and the speech begins by Moses essentially telling the people, now you've learned to trust God during your time in the desert. When you enter the promised land, you're going to need to remember to trust him there like you trusted him here. And then, as Moses continues, he informs them that trusting God in the promised land, trusting God during seasons when life is comfortable and predictable, well, it isn't as easy as it might seem. So this is not a new phenomenon in human history. Moses says it this way. He warns them. He says, um, when you have eaten and are satisfied, in other words, all of a sudden, you've got abundance, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. And then this, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees. He says, it goes on, that I'm giving you this day. He said, otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and, and, your, and your gold and silver increase, and all you have is multiplied, well, then your heart will become proud, and, and you'll forget about the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? And as, as as he's speaking, I would imagine the people saying, "We'll never forget. We'll never forget." But Moses just keeps going. He says, "You got to remember. God led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions." He said, and he goes on. He says, "He brought. He provided for you there. He brought you water out of hard rock, and and he gave you manna to eat." In the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known. Remember we said last week, manna means what is it? Because they saw it on the ground one and they're like, what is it? And then they're like, we should eat it because we have nothing else. Okay, fine. That seems, maybe that's a good idea. Right. Something your ancestors had never known. To humble and test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. And then he just keeps going. He says, otherwise you might say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. I do it myself. But. He says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. As you can see, Moses could not have been any clearer. Feelings of self-sufficiency move our focus away from God and can be dangerous to our faith or maybe said differently, material blessings often come prepackaged with feelings of autonomy. And I truly believe that standing there on the edge of the promised land that day, thousands of years ago, Israel understood Moses' warning. They heard him, they believed him, they had learned the lessons of the desert and they were committed to staying connected to God as their source of their hope and their physical provision. But as time passed, and this gives me hope because this is an experience we probably all had, uh, Moses' words proved to be prophetic because the people experienced incredible blessing and, and along with the blessing came feelings of, of self-sufficiency. And in time, they functionally forgot about God. Actually, they functionally forgot about God over and over and over again. And, and, and during one such season around... 600 years before the time of Jesus. The Jewish prophet Jeremiah recorded God's lament. This broke broke God's heart. And and the lament is interesting because it leveraged a really interesting image that ultimately answers our question about the meaning of the phrase living water. Jeremiah recorded God saying the following. My people, speaking of, of Israel, have committed two sins. They have forsaken me. They've walked away from me. They've, they've stopped pursuing me. They've become disconnected from me. He says, the spring of living water. That's the first And the second, he says, and, and they've, they've dug their own cisterns. But, but it's worse than that. Because cisterns, remember, are those things that can hold water. I and mean, the water inside would get, would get nasty and animals would use it as, as bathroom stops. But... Cisterns, you know, you could, you could drink that water, but he says, no, 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 it's even worse than that. Broken broken cisterns, it, they can't hold water at all. So by the strength of their hands, um, they've dug cisterns and they've turned their back on the free-flowing, cool, refreshing waters that I offer them. So God uses this, this image of, of a broken cistern, uh, incapable of holding even the stalest of waters to represent our attempts at self-sufficiency. All those times when we try to leverage our time and our talent and our treasure to ensure our safety and comfort and stability. And he notes that, that ultimately anything we create with our own hands will be insufficient to provide that which we ultimately need. I mean, it may provide us with a sense of security in the short term, but in the long term, that sense will be shown to be a mirage. And I don't think he's saying that, like, planning for the future is a bad thing here. It's almost like, where is your hope? What are you looking to ultimately? And that's where you see God contrasting the broken cisterns with, with living water. He says, I am living water. I am a reliable source for all that you need to sustain you in this life and the life to come. And so what I see here is that, like, God is inviting us to trust him with everything, with our our dreams, with our desires, with our passions, with our opportunities, with our plans. He desires us to look at him as our living hope, as as our living water during even the most painful chapters in life. He wants to be living water for us. And so I remember the day I'm standing on the shore or, or the shores of the waterfall, really, the waterfall at Angeti. And for me it was, it was this moment of of just checking my heart. Say so the question, where is where is your hope? Is it in your ability alone? And and God gave you gifts and you should use them. And and it's not bad to try to save for the future. And And to try to control that which you can control. But ultimately to acknowledge that there is going to come a time. Where you are no longer able to control. And what happens in that moment? Where do you look? Because he is there. And he loves you. And he is waiting to connect with you. And to provide you that which you ultimately need. He will be your living water. Because he loves you, and he is for you, and he cares for you, he will ultimately provide what you need. And so for me, that is the lesson of Enghetti. All right, um, that brings us kind of to the end of our time together, but as we do each week, my hope is that all of this would spark some conversations. Not only internal conversations, and those are very, very valuable, uh, but maybe conversations that you have with whoever you do life with. Maybe over dinner today, a great conversation to have with with teenagers. But three questions to get you going. The first one uh, goes like this. Why do you think it's so tempting for us to try to be self-sufficient? And then kind of a follow-up question. Can we ever really get there? Can we just acknowledge that that there's a limit to our attempts at self-sufficiency? Second question. It uh, goes like this, is it possible to plan for the future and still be connected to God? Why or why not do you think that's possible? And then, and then finally this one, uh, how can we keep ourselves connected to God during a season of blessing? And it's my hope that, that as you wrestle some of this down, uh, you would be reminded as I was reminded uh, where your ultimate hope lies. Why don't you stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm well aware that um, for a whole bunch of us, this is an interesting reminder. But for some of us, we entered this room in a desert. And maybe for a few of us, this reminder that you are what we ultimately need. You are what our soul thirsts for and that you are faithful. I pray that 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 truth would bring comfort, that, troop would, that, that truth would reignite hope, that you have not abandoned us, and that you are working out a plan in our lives, and you invite us to trust you, even and especially in the rough moments, in the rough chapters. But for this morning, in this place, we thank you that you're faithful, we thank you that you're trustworthy. we thankful that you are love. May we be people who carry that truth to our world. And so we thank you. We celebrate you. And we bless you in the matchless name of your son who came as light in darkness. Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week for part five of Virtual Israel.